And good afternoon and welcome to Deering Live on this wonderfully sunny Thursday afternoon in June. What a, the year is going so fast. I cannot believe it. It's, um, it's flying by at a rate that I uh, hadn't anticipated that it would. But here we are. It is the longest day of the year already, a couple of days back. And uh, from here on out, it's going to get darker a little earlier every evening. So just to bring that positivity to the show today. Here we go. Um, this week, we are honored to welcome a true, true rising star of the, of the bluegrass banjo. Um, as a former instructor at the prestigious Berkeley School of Music, as well as a founding member of the popular American root string band Joy Kill Sorrow, he is currently holding down banjo duties for the legendary Sam Bush. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Wes Corbett. Wes, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited that you're here, as yeah, are we. And uh, Senior Dave is... Uh, Back in New Orleans, how are you doing? Good to see you All as right. always. Good to be here. Yep. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to kick off as we do around these parts with uh, inviting our guests to play a little tune. Would you mind serenading us for the beginning <laughs> of the show? And, uh, and then we're going to kick off with some, uh, some questions and some good conversation, I hope. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, right. I'll, I'll play a tune off of my new solo record, new as of 2020, which I think still counts as new. Uh, it does. <laughs> right. I can confirm that. Brand yeah. new. Um, this one's called Light Em Up. Thank you. 
That's fantastic, Wes. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's really great to have you here. But uh, always, always want the best parts about doing this is really being able to to dig into your music, that the, the artist music that's on the show, and really kind of for the week, just kind of you know go all in with it. And uh, and this was a fun one. This was this I really did enjoy myself. So I'm looking oh, forward you. to this. Thanks. <laughs> um, uh, before we get into, I'd, I'd like to talk about your album a lot, but before we get into that, when we, uh, um, you know, it's talked a little bit about playing with Sam Bush and about, you know, how you, the announcement kind of came right before COVID and, and yeah. I, I guess you just started playing again. So how, how is it being out there? Did you play Telluride with him? I just did. I, I got back on Sunday night from Telluride with Sam, which was amazing. This year, um, it was at 25% capacity. So instead of 10,000 people, it was 2,500 people for two weekends. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I missed my first, what, what would have been my first Telluride with Sam last summer um, because of COVID. But I, I guess I made up for it with, with two Telluride sets on the main stage, this one, which was incredible. I mean, um, it's it's hard to put into words what being on that stage with, with that band means to me. I mean, um, when I graduated high school, uh, my dad and I went on a trip to, to tell you ride. That was, that was my dad's graduation present to me, which is a, a very privileged gift. Um, but we, we went together, you know, before I, before I went to college and, I saw the house band for the first time. The house band is, is Bela and Jerry Douglas, uh, Edgar Meyer, Brian Sutton, Stuart Duncan, and Sam. Um, I saw them for the first time that time. And, uh, it certainly was not lost on me, you know, what it is to be on that stage with Sam and with the Sam Bush band. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty surreal. 
<laughs> that's 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 cool. That's uh, it's it's a great story. How do you? What's the? Is he when he plays? Um, playing partially electric when uh with you. Yeah, and yeah. you play an electric banjo with that. How how do you? How do yeah, you do that? well, so most of the set is is on an acoustic banjo, and we can we can talk about how I even make that possible, considering the band is is as loud as it is on stage uh-huh. and and out front. Um, but the the sort of last. I don't know, maybe 20 minutes of, of a, of a typical set is the whole band goes electric. And my solution to that has been, um, I'm playing a, a Japanese telecaster that Robin Smith actually, who, who passed away not too long ago. He's a, a was a really amazing banjo luthier here in Nashville. Um, and a, and a long standing friend of mine, um, the last time I saw him, he carved the neck of, of this telecaster into a banjo neck for me. Um, wow. Right before I left for the, the longest tour that I've done so far with the Sam Bush band, which was in February and March of 2020, uh, we played 14 shows out to Colorado and back leaving from Nashville. And I got to, you know, play that new instrument. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I basically Sam really wants me to be feeling kind of more of a organ kind of sound. Um, Uh and Scott Vestal, who I replaced had a whole MIDI rig to do that. So he had a, um, I think he had a strap or something with a banjo neck on it, um, Uh that he had a a full rack of gear processing a, a whole, like a MIDI pickup on, on that guitar. And then he used his, his solution was MIDI. Um, I, you know, honestly just didn't quite want to go down that rabbit hole. It's a pretty intense one. Um, so I've been seeing if I can figure out how to, to, how to make some of those same sounds, but with analog effects pedals instead. So I'm using a Neo vent, which is a, a, a Leslie pedal, essentially a really nice sounding one. Um, and then I'm also occasionally playing through a, uh, like an envelope filter. It's like an auto wah, um, mm. called a discombobulator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that one I, I use, uh, not it like, you know, they all have lots of different settings. You can get a bunch of different sounds. I, I don't like, uh, go crazy with it, but you can kind of get something more. that sounds a little bit like a clove kind of sound with that. Um, which is a lot of fun on some of the like funkier stuff. And, and the banjo right hand really lends itself to those types of sounds. Right. Yeah. So. And then how are you doing it with, you mentioned, uh, you know, having to play loudly on the acoustic banjo. What are you doing there? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about the banjo, when, when we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the front of house pushing somewhere between like 80 and hundred DB a lot of the time, which really is very loud. Um, and it's loud on stage too, cause there's amps all over the stage. Everybody's playing through an amp. There's a full drum kit with a truly legendary drummer named Chris Brown, who's been with Sam for almost 20 years now. And their rhythm, the, the band's rhythm in general is just unbelievable. Um, and, and Chris Brown is just a dream to play with. I haven't played with that many drummers, honestly, but I, I feel like I'm spoiled for life. <laughs> Having played with, with Chris right. and Sam together is just ridiculous. But um, <clears throat> So for my acoustic rig, you have to stuff the banjo. Basically what, what ends up happening is you go from being 
the instrument that is the most easily mic'd to the instrument that is the uh, basically just turns into a microphone once once stage volume gets past a certain point. So uh, I have three pieces of pick foam. Pick foam is like if you if you get like a Pelican case or or some kind of like tour worthy case. A lot of time it'll come with this this foam that's perforated so you can tear it out in sections. Um, so I have three pieces of, I guess like four by three pick foam that I'm using the coordinator rods. I like shove it in underneath, you know, underneath the head with the coordinator rods, pressing it up against the head. And that's kind of the bare minimum amount of stuffing that I've been able to find where it never feeds back. Right. And that's kind of the game because the more you put in the, the deader, the pickup sounds, I'm using an EMG pickup. Um, they have two different models. There's one, I think it's like two humbuckers, but the one that I'm using is, is a magnetic pickup. It's kind of their version of the, um, the rare earth, the rare earth. Yeah. That it, and Chris Pandolfi and Ryan Cavanaugh helped them develop that. It's called the barrel. Right. Um, right. And I, I like that pickup a lot. I, I think it has a little bit more air to it than, than the rare earth does. Um, it just sounds a little bit more natural. Um, and if you look at, my banjo here, you can actually see I have not one, but two metal shins, uh, one under the center foot and one under the treble foot um, and on the outside of the banjo. So they're actually underneath the feet of the bridge. That's something that Gnome and Bela taught me years ago. You, you get a little bit more feedback resistance and a little more um, kind of uh, solid tone out of it as opposed to what they tell you to do is to to put those shims um kind of tape them or glue them underneath the head um and i feel like you you just get a little bit less of a natural sound you get more head and less right. note essentially well wow, that's uh, good to know um but yeah and then um i'm running into i was using a felix which is a, a right. really really nice preamp made by by grace for a long time i realized that i was actually using it um using the eq on it and so sparingly and actually only using one channel the, the felix is a two-channel preamp um so i i actually recently downgraded to the bix which is their much simple it's still grace but it's much simpler um, right. instead of being like a thousand dollars, it's like 250 bucks or something. Um, and you know, I guess if you look at the EQ, it looks a little crazy. I mean, I, I have the, like the low and the highs, like, especially the high knob cranked, like it's boosted probably at least like 10 or 11 DB. That doesn't knob. pick up like a lot of pick noise from that. No, that's the amazing thing. I mean, I, I think that's the magic of, of what grace has been doing is, is uh, those preamps are catered towards acoustic musicians. And even though maybe that, that preamp in particular is, is more catered towards a guitar player, you know, uh, the, the sort of nasty sounds that come out of, out of pickups in general are kind of universal to some degree. So mm -hmm. whatever is happening in there, uh, it it's, pretty great i mean we when we were playing at telluride our our front of house sound guys and his rick wheeler is amazing he told me my rig was was flat in front of house so what's coming off my board is exactly what the crowd was hearing wow. which is exciting for me it means i'm you know i'm doing something right yeah 
Um, and then I'm playing through an AER amp, which is a, a again like kind of specifically yeah. tailored for acoustic musicians. I'm using the Alpha, which is the smallest one. It's like a one foot by one foot by one foot cube, and it weighs like almost nothing. And that's mainly the, like your monitor. Yeah, that? yeah, and that's an interesting thing too. You know, ha- having having the main because when the banjo is stuffed, it barely makes any sound. So then it's like I, I'm really relying on what's coming from behind me um for for that sound and i get it as high up as i possibly can like as and tipped up so it's pointed at my head um one so i can hear it better and two so that it's shooting above the back of the banjo right it's all about like trying to reduce feedback um and then and then i get the rest of the band from the monitor in front of me um yeah and not playing in your history isn't playing in in many loud bands. I don't think, right? It's mainly acoustic, straight ahead acoustic groups. Yeah. How'd you get a, get this all together? Was it in a rehearsal studio with 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 the band with Sam's band, or um, where we play well, full volume and kind of tweak it out so you aren't we doing did it on do stage? That. Yeah, we went to a place called SIR here in Nashville, um, and that was actually so there there was a video that was shot um, where where the Sam and the rest of the band passed me this ceremonial pink cowboy hat. Um, and that was directly after my first full rehearsal with the band. And, and pretty much when Sam actually told me I had the gig (laughs) wildly enough, um, like he kind of looked around and looked around to everybody and they were all like, (laughs) I don't know, that was when it was official. And then they gave me that beautiful hat. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I but Joy Kill Sorrow towards the end of our time uh, was getting louder and louder. I mean, I was playing with a pickup and and a mic blended into a headway preamp, which is what a lot of people were using back then. Um, it's like an English made preamp, which which sounded good for sure. Um, the Felix is better, and the Felix Two is even better, better uh, for that. But so I, I do have some experience with with like putting a pickup in a banjo, trying to figure out how to get it to sound good and how to get it loud. This is the first time I've had to stuff the banjo consistently. Mm-hmm. There were a few, you know, kind of slug out gigs where I, I knew I knew I had to stuff it with Joy Kill Sorrow. But it was something I, you know, I tried to avoid, honestly, for a long time because it's a whole rabbit hole, really trying to like get back everything that you lose. Right. Totally. Yeah, and stuff. You know, you, you play a great acoustic instrument. You have a very nice instrument. Then you're you're essentially killing the tone. Um, <laughs> so. Well, the interesting thing about and this is um, Dave Cinco is a, a pretty legendary sound guy here in Nashville. He's also been Punch Brothers front of house sound guy since the very beginning, and he's a really close friend of mine. Just through um, I produce records sometimes and. Um, so we've, we've worked together in a a bunch of different contexts and just become really close friends. He's, he's been really helpful with, with figuring out how to get my rig sounding the way it does. Um, he was, it was his idea to put the second shim under, under the treble foot. I felt like the tone was kind of dying above the 12th fret in a way that I just couldn't really seem to EQ back. Um, and the second shim really made a big difference under, underneath that treble foot, even though the pickup itself is like only the size of a quarter 
So it's that that second shim isn't even actually directly over top of the pickup, but it still makes a difference. It's sort of pickup adjacent. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, why don't you can we quickly talk about your for people that don't aren't as familiar with you um, talk about your history without going too deep into it, but bands that you played in and, and, uh, and, and then about your time at Berkeley. Um, I'd like to sure. kind of see, kind of get into that a little bit, but, but quickly, yeah. why don't you kind of, kind of go over some of the bands that you played in and your history as a banjo player? Yeah. So I started out as a classical pianist. Um, I was really, really lucky that my folks, um, recognized that I was very musical or, that's a weird way I said that I was musical from a very young age is what I was trying to say. Um, and so they started me at two and a half with Suzuki piano. Um, and I did that until I was 15 until I heard Bela Fleck. Uh, I, I played a few other instruments during that time. Um, in middle school, I, I met a man named Jeff Bedoni who, uh, lived, uh, I grew up on Bainbridge Island uh, across water from Seattle. And he, was uh, really well versed in like traditional Malian uh, percussion. And also he's a really great Kora player, which is kind of one of the like, it's not necessarily the grandfather of the banjo, but it's like the great uncle of the banjo. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I kind of accidentally worked my way through the roots of the banjo to the banjo, totally unintentionally. And I heard Bela and it was like a lightning strike for me at, at 14. And um, I figured out how to get a banjo, and I got my first lesson from a guy named Dave Keenan in Seattle, who's such a great banjo player and guitar player, mandolin player, violin player, singer. He's just a, I, I'm so lucky to have had two amazing teachers in my, in my youth. Um, and I worked with Dave basically until I graduated. Then I went to CalArts for one year in L.A. as a banjo player. This is before the program at Berkeley existed. I moved home and then moved to Boston. Um, I ended up playing with a band called the Biscuit Burners out of Asheville, North Carolina for about a year and a half. And then I joined Joy Kills Sorrow. I got the call literally on the night of my last gig uh, with, with the Biscuit Burners to join Joy Kills Sorrow. Um, I was in that band for, uh, well, until 2000, I'm so bad at this, 15, I think is when we played our last show. Um, and during that time, I was the banjo professor at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, um, just teaching private lessons. That's that's all it was, really. Um, and then, you know, a, a few other duties here and there, um, which was which was super cool. It was such a great excuse for me to actually organize my own playing, because it's one thing to be able to play something and an entirely different thing to be able to teach it. So, um you know, and it was amazing to go into work in in Back Bay in Boston and see Daryl Anger and Joe Walsh and Bruce Molsky, Tony Trishka, uh, Maeve Gilchrist. It was wild. I mean, the, the, the faculty that I was part of, it's still kind of shocking <laughs> to me. Um, then I started playing with Molly Tuttle after that. I played with Molly for, again, I'm so bad at this, like maybe four years almost. Um, and then in January of 2020, I got the gig with the Sandwich Band. 
Well, um, Sam and I were on a session together here in Nashville for a whole day with a, with a band called Nefrish Mountain. Actually, the, the record that yeah. we, I, I guess, that got me the gig, the session that got me the gig, that record just came out. So you could, you could check it out, um, the, the tunes that Sam and I are on together. We were across from each other in this big, beautiful live room um, at a, a pretty legendary studio here in Nashville called Sound Emporium. You seem to have a, like a, you know, a well-deserved, but, uh, but you, you seem to, another gig seems to come along right at the right time. Uh, <laughs> in your I history. Guess so. Yeah. I, you know, when, when Molly made the switch to kind of out of bluegrass and into more Americana slash almost indie rock kind of, which is where she's at now, um, uh, you know, banjo wasn't in the band anymore. Um, so I spent, I mean, I, I maybe had like, I don't know, eight, eight months of, of being, being home again, teaching, doing some session work, um, you know, and I was actually kind of gearing up. Um, I had the session on the books for, for my record called Cascade. I played a tune off of there. Um, I was kind of gearing up to, to have my own band. Um, and then, and then the thing with Sam came along and that, that, uh, rightfully so, got shoved aside to a later date. Sorry, I lost the, I lost the video for a second. You're good. You're good. All good. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and and in your teaching, like at Berkeley, you're teaching. You know, you're teaching very talented students. You aren't just teaching beginners. Uh, you know, standard uh, standard. Uh, you know, music store lessons. Um, sure. So what did you, was there, was there s- kind of a common theme that you tried to get across with a lot of the banjo players that you, um, you know, cause, cause I'm sure a lot of them had technical skill and could play their scales and et cetera and all, things like that. But sure. how did you kind of turn them into musicians outside of just, uh, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, People Instead of being banjo well. players, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, well, you know, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting one putting the the five string three figure banjo into academia, um, and there isn't a perfect answer to it yet. To be totally honest, um, I, I think that we're we're talking about an in- instrument that. Uh, like if we compare it to the violin, which has hundreds of years of pedagogy established with it, so much um, amazing material at, at every level and in every style. And the, the five-string banjo is, is an infant compared to that in, in terms of what's been established technically and, and musically and, and all of these different things. So it, it was a struggle sometimes, to be, to be totally honest. Um, I, I, I kind of viewed my job as, as making sure that I was kind of doing this juggling act with them. Um, because I kind of think of the banjo as an instrument that you need to be bilingual on from the get go. We need to learn the language of Earl Scruggs, learn the language of bluegrass banjo, because that really is the closest thing to like the classical pedagogy on that instrument. There's no replacement for, for learning how to play Scrug style really well, what it does for your tone production and timing and um, kind of the nimbleness of your right hand. 
the reason, you know, that, that Bela and Noam, Allison Brown, um, all, all of these players that, that we all look up to in, in kind of the, the modern iteration of banjo, the only reason they're able to do what they can do is because they're really good Scrug style players. So that was really important to me. I, I kind of had this juggling act of like, okay, let's work on that for a while. Okay, now let's work on Western music. <laughs> let's work on what everybody else does. Um, and they inform each other in a really beautiful way. Uh, but I think that was mostly what I, what I tried to think about. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying exactly about the, the juggling act of these two, uh, things of playing, you know, of playing bluegrass and playing and playing, you know, you know, more mainstream music or, or just, you know, harmonically different things like that. Um, sure. I, how do you, but how do you sometimes, I find from just speaking from, for myself, sometimes I don't play much bluegrass. There's not much bluegrass in New Orleans. Um, mm -hmm. But I know that you have to keep playing that to keep the chops up. So it's kind right. of, it's this weird balance of trying to, trying to do that, but then also trying to play stuff that'll actually, you know, get you gigs in a non-bluegrass setting. Um, yeah, that's it. That's an, well, and you know, I, that question was posed to me quite a bit at Berkeley, you know, and every once in a while I would get some pushback on like, why, why am I playing this JD Crow transcription right now? Um, right. You know, um, uh, I mean, I don't have a perfect answer to it. I, I think that for me, I, I know that if I can find a way to be really excited and engaged with something that I, I know I'm supposed to do kind of, um, mm -hmm. if I can find a way to really, to bring a lot of joy into it, that's, that's the way that it's works for me. I, I, I'm kind of incapable of, of forcing myself to do things musically, unless I'm like under the gun for a gig, you know, it's like, I really need to learn this material. Maybe yeah. it's not my favorite material or whatever it is. It's, and it, it can't all be your favorite material. Like that comes up and you just have to learn it. Like you have to be good right. at it. You have to, you know, that's one thing. But if we're talking about kind of, um, yeah, like e extending your, your knowledge of the instrument and the music in a deeper way, um, you, you just have to find the players and, and the materials that really draw you in. Just figure yeah. out what, what that is and, and that's all you need. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, would you want to play another tune for us sure. right now? And yeah. 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 Um, I'll play another one off my record if that's okay. Perfect. Um, yeah. This is, this is one that I wrote for a, a really beautiful spot in central Oregon where my wife and I got married. I, I have a lot of like family, family ties to, to Oregon and Washington in general. Um, and for whatever reason, whenever I'm hanging out in this, in this spot, I, I always find myself playing in F without a capo, which is a, a key center that I just really like on the banjo in general. But there's like, there's just something about that place that makes me, makes me want to make those sounds. Um, so this one's called Camp Sherman. Thank you. 
I want to get into talking about the album, but but there's a couple questions popping up in the chat, so I want to get sure. to these two right now. Um, uh, we have one question from Joseph Rosk, a regular um, listener on, on here, viewer on here, and uh, he says, "I'm a beginner, but progressing. After much listening, I believe I'm drawn to melodic style over all others. How proficient must I be at Scruggs style before I tackle melodic style playing?" Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that the reality is they inform one another and uh, the, the deeper you make your knowledge in either of them, the better your playing is going to get. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, I, maybe, and this isn't perhaps the answer that you want, but I, I think that Try to jettison the idea that at some point you're going to be done learning something, right? Uh, there, there's always more to learn in any style. I mean, there, there are so many amazing trad banjo players who have who have dedicated their lives just to the playing of of um, like rendering a role based melody in the way that that Earl or JV would, um, and I have infinite respect for that. So I, I would say that um, <laughs> keep trying to find ways to have Scrug style excite you and realize that they are very intertwined, that they are symbiotic. All right. Good answer. <laughs> um, we have another question here. What songs or books were a big aha moment for, for you that helped you develop your freedom of playing? Mm. 
Um, let's see. I mean, I worked through uh, a bunch of the, the AccuTab book of the Bluegrass 90s records of, of Bestel were really awesome for me. Just I remember those, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I think those are so great because they're tunes that you really get to play with other people in a normal jam session. You know, like if somebody calls Temperance Real or something, not that I even play those tunes exactly the way Scott did on the on those records but having having something on paper to be like oh i see right and my right hand's pretty weird actually i i i tend to um uh part of the weird freedom maybe that we're talking about is is that like sometimes if, if i'm playing single string i lead with my thumb and sometimes i lead with my index um it just depends on what's easiest i counter a lot of awkward string crossings using uh, like three finger systems um and a lot of that will actually be really, really clearly pointed to in the tab book of my new record that's coming out um, pretty soon that me and Adam Larrabee and Jake Sheps have been working on for, for months, actually. <laughs> Is, are you tabbing out your, your album, Cascade? Yeah, yeah. So all the, all the melodies, all the solos, selected backup. Um, and Adam Larrabee, who is, if you don't know him, you should check him out. He's the banjo player in a band in a band called Love Cannon. But he's also just a, um, an epic musician in general. Really amazing jazz guitar player who also is obsessed with banjo. Um, so his, I think one of the really unique things about that book is that it'll have editor's notes at the end of, of each chapter of each tune, essentially of all the things that Adam thinks are kind of unique or, or worth paying attention to. Um, and they're really well written and, and really succinct. Um, we're kind of trying to, to, to make a, make a tab book that we would be excited to get, that we would be excited to learn from. Yeah. There haven't been as many tab books as in recent years. I don't think of, of like an album, you know, like a, right. When, when in my, in college at, the drive album, Bela's drive album, that tab book. I know, I, you know, yeah. Such cover a great, cover. It, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, as banjo, as sort of modern banjo material has gotten, I mean, if we take like Noam's universal favorite, the, those tunes are so hard, yeah. you know, it's the kind of technical standard. I, I think at some point, at least Noam has kind of been like, like do I, why should I like should I he's I, we've talked about it you know mm -hmm. he, he lives like two miles from me we're buddies um and he's like I don't know I just feel I feel bad <laughs> <laughs> um and you know there's plenty of really hard stuff on my record too but there's a few really accessible things but mm -hmm. I think the other thing kind of it, it, coming back to um uh the Berkeley thing is that the there is an amazing crop of of kind of modern banjo players coming up right now, um, players that are that are just really really good. They've absorbed so much, mm -hmm. um, and and so I think actually this idea that you know putting out a tab book of of my record or I would love for Gnome to put out a tab book of yeah. of Universal Favorite or or any of his records, right? It would be so great, especially, I think, if it was organized the way that we're talking about organizing mine, you know, um, that, that it has, it's not just the notes on the page. There, there's, there's analysis of it. There's, there's a lot to be gleaned from it, but other than just the literal tablature. Yeah. Right. 
but, I, look, um, I look forward to, to definitely checking it out. Um, okay. One the one thing that I always wanted as a, as a in an advanced tab book is for it to be. This is my request right now, but it's probably too late in the game. But <laughs> oh, got, for, for it to be written in musical notation too, ah. so so I could so you can so, so I'm not just reading. So I can see the actual musicality of it, um, well, and not just the tab sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the limitation with that is just physical numbers of pages. Yeah. One one thing that Adam, um, we've been talking about it, and you saying that, you know, even just makes me want to, for sure, pull the trigger on it. Is 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 having standard notation lead sheets for all the tunes. So mm-hmm. even you know, like we're talking about. Like a, the first tune that I played, "Light 'Em Up," is is a is a long tone melody suspended amidst roll bass playing. So the long tone melody is what would be written out in standard notation, along with the mm-hmm. chords, the full arrangement, um, and, and you know you could have like a PDF version of a lead sheet of of "Light 'Em Up," and if if right. somebody wanted to like put it in front of their in front of their buddies to to play, yeah. you could actually do it, you know, um, right. Yeah, many many real book of uh, of your of your tunes. You know? Right, right, and I, I think that you know again there are some that I I mean I would be thrilled but also shocked if if I if anybody actually did it. But then there are other ones you know that on on the record that um, are really are pretty jammable. So, yeah. well, getting into like the the production that the whole idea of you produced it with Chris Eldridge, right? Hmm. Um. How did the, how was the concept of the album? How did that kind of come together? Because it does sound like a full, it doesn't just sound like you went and played some tunes um, and right. record some tunes. It sounds like a, a, a you know, a, a piece of, a, a concise piece of work. Um, and so I can tell that there's some planning in, in, for it. So how did that come across it, come about? And how did you and Chris talk about you know, before going and recording it. Um, sure. It all well, so some of these tunes are as old as 2013. Uh, some, you know, I've been, and it's been in my mind for a long time that I wanted to make a solo record with a bluegrass instrumentation. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a stretch for anyone who's familiar with it to listen to my record and be like, this is heavily influenced by, you know, Bela Flex, Tales from the Acoustic Planet, Volume Two, the Bluegrass Sessions. You know, or or Drive, um, and that's yeah. Drive is. is definitely some of some of the tunes. It's like this. This, I I feel the Drive influence on this definitely. Yeah, I mean, I I just I cut my teeth listening to those records. Those were the records that that drew me in. Same with like uh, Chris Thiele's Not All Who Wander Are Lost. Like those kinds of tunes. That the the way that. Uh, all the instrumentation lays together. Um, so it's been on my mind a long time. I approached Critter about producing it about a year before the session. And I booked that session almost a year in advance. I mean, that's how hard it is to, to get that group of people together in one room for, for two days of rehearsal and five days of tracking. And that's mm-hmm. all we had. We had two 10 hour days of rehearsal and five full days in the studio to make, to make that record. So Critter and I got together probably at least half a dozen times 
kind of workshopped these tunes over, you know, like three or four hours together. And I would kind of, you know, we, we would play them together. We would map things out. Um, at first it was, you know, melodic and structural uh, as in like, um, maybe this melody would work a little bit better if we move this around and, and having Critter, who's just truly one of my favorite rhythm guitar players of all time. He just brings such like, uh, life out of, out of my bluegrass playing in a way that, you know, um, that I hadn't found in many other places. Mm-hmm. Um, w- was amazing to get to, you know, bounce all these ideas off of him and, so over the course of about six months leading to the session, we did that a bunch, you know, and then maybe in the last month or two, I started doing mock arrangements of, of all of the tunes um, and we would play them together. We would play them as a duo, but, but uh, playing our parts, um, time them really, you know, because it's just the rehearsal time and studio time was really limited. So I, I wanted to be as prepared as I possibly could you know set it up for success as much as you can and and things got changed things got changed in rehearsal and in studio when when they don't work but um but i was also i think pleasantly surprised with like how how much my and my and critters imaginations together actually came through you mm-hmm. know, for us in terms of in terms of arranging all of that and how did you arrange for the the each musician well, I, I mean, part of why I chose the musicians that, that are playing on the record, which I, I can just list off, it's it's Paul Cowart on bass, Chris Eldridge on guitar, Alex Hargraves on fiddle, Sierra Hall on mandolin, Casey Campbell on the other half of the mandolin tracks, myself on banjo, and then on a couple of select tracks, my my like lifelong musical buddy, Simon Crisman on hammered dulcimer, who he like just transcends that instrument. Uh, he's so... He's, he's just an incredible. You did another another album with him. Yeah, we have a duo record yeah. together. Too. Yeah, I checked yeah. out that something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think part of it is that I I know all of those folks. We played actually quite a bit of music together. Um, I played a lot of music with Paul and with Critter over the years. Um, I've known Alex since he was like eleven. He grew up in Oregon, and I was in Washington, so we would run into each other at festivals. And um, he's one of my oldest picking buddies, actually. So cool. all these folks I, I know and love and trust. So really what it's about is understanding what they're capable of. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> like all those folks are capable of so much, but basically it's like trusting that if I set up a, a situation like this, I know that Sierra is going to do an amazing job of, of getting from a to B in the way, in the shape that, the arrangement is already alluding to if that makes sense so i i didn't actually have to tell people what to play very much and i think part of that is just they're amazing amazingly intuitive musicians um and also i put a lot of time a lot of time into thinking about what i what i expected and hoped that they would do and uh, it's great that you didn't get, did, did it, booking the session kind of trigger you to, to get working on the project on a serious level? Oh, definitely. Nothing, <laughs> nothing works better than a deadline. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, making that duo record with Simon is really what kind of opened the floodgates for me on that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that was my first venture into kind of a non-democratic uh, record process outside of just like, you know, playing on somebody else's record. But right. in terms of things that I've had a lot of creativity, creative, uh, creative input in. I love the interesting thing you've done is with the YouTube videos, um, playing, uh, playing your, it's not, you're playing your part again, basically. Right. Well, yeah. So, so, you know, when my record came out, um, in December of 2020, I, I had to figure out, you know, some kind of, promotion pandemic and COVID specific ways to safely promote my record. And one of the things that I came up with was, well, what if Dave Cinco exports, um, the mixes to me, but without any banjo. And basically I karaoke my own record all live in one take. Um, but recorded with the exact same rig that I recorded the record with. So I went over to Stephen Mojan's house, um, who is the guitar player in the Sandwich Band. And um, he's also a really great videographer. He did all the video and the engineering for, for those. Um, so I played, I did not play note for note what I played on the record because I improvised almost all of it. Um, backup, solos, everything. Um, so what you hear is essentially like alternate takes to the record live on camera um and they're all a single they're all a single take so it's it's cool though you you can see it's really allows you to see because just listening to the record it allows you to really kind of see how you how you do things and your approach to it and and then uh, uh um and yeah and because it, it was improvised it wasn't just you playing you know a, a note for note transcription of yourself basically right um so it is, it is interesting. And you're so relaxed as, as the, the takes about to roll, you know, as the music starts and then your part comes in at a certain section. <laughs> <laughs> well, you it know, is, it is, I mean, it, it does show that, that you have a very, you're very relaxed in your hand. I guess it's the preparation you've done. Uh, I mean, I did practice like crazy for that, but part of it is because I didn't have anything else to practice, <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I mean, and, and quite frankly, it was the closest I'd come to playing music with other people since those last gigs with Sam. We did, we did two, uh, we all got tested and like quarantined and played and then played outdoor distanced festivals in, in October of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they really were, I think, pretty safe. It was important to me and important to all of us that, that they were. Um, and they were handled really well. Uh, but basically, I mean, that's the closest I'd come to playing music with anyone else in months. And, and honestly, uh, I, I think it was a pretty like, it was a pretty emotional experience for me, if I'm going to be totally honest. It, it, playing through the same exact microphones that I, that I played through on that session. It, it really felt like I was back there. I mean, I was, it was like the, it, it was like a, um, a real life flashback or something in, in a, in a really fun way. So, yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's cool. Um, what about, you mentioned those microphones, uh, one is an AEA and the other is, um, what are they exactly? 
Yeah. So there's an R84, which is a, they're both new microphones and they're both, they're both critters. Actually critter has a really amazing microphone collection. We did a, a pretty, um, extensive shootout before my record with Ben Surratt, who engineered the record. He lives here in Nashville. Um, you might not know him, but you probably know his wife, Missy Rains. Um, and Is he? Ben? Ben uh, no, yeah. that's Ben Salit. Um, Ben Surratt oh, okay. is, uh, yeah, he's, he plays some guitar, but he's really mostly just an engineer these days. Okay. Um, he, he has a, a studio here in East Nashville and, um, also does live sound and, and does studio work in other studios. He's, he's a really great bluegrass engineer. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, there's a lot to like about a five minute commute to the, to the studio. Yeah. And he, he was one block away from Critter's house. So Critter literally like walked all of the gear over that we really <laughs> use of his. Um, so it's an R84, which is a, a new ribbon mic. And then a uh, Soyuz, oof, I'm forgetting the model number. They don't ha even have that many. What is it, a 105? It's like maybe? a 17 or something. I was looking at it today. I, f I forget. Yeah, I yeah. forget. But I, they don't have very many. It's the white one with the gold metal, and it's a, a large diaphragm. Um, and those two microphones together with my right hand, both through Gordon preamps, which are very kind of... Um, muscular sounding uh and natural sounding preamp uh is what's making the banjo tone there uh it's about a probably i would guess like 70 30 blend of the favored to the soyuz the the ribbon just gives you this really nice um like <laughs> i'm ned yeah ned uh, <laughs> thank you ned thank you neighbor i appreciate it <laughs> he really is the best banjo neighbor you could possibly ask for um, i i mean i feel i feel guilty about it actually because i'll like text him or call him and be like Ben, I totally forgot to, or uh, Ned, I totally forgot to like order strings <laughs> before this tour or like, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, uh, or like, do you have any of these picks or like, do you have a new head? <laughs> Someday I will repay all of it. I promise. Um, but yeah, that, that I, I've had a lot of success in a number of different studios, different preamps and different microphones. But that's kind of become my standard mic setup is a large diaphragm and a ribbon set up in the way that they're set up uh, in those videos. You can see it exactly yeah, yeah. how it is. Um, I, I've done it with like an old U87 or a U89 um, and, you know, a number of different ribbon mics. It's pretty much always successful for me. It sounds great. It, it's working. Um, and it's surprising that they're so close together though. I think they'd be like at different angles or something capturing a different, you know, right. Different, well, um, the nice thing, the nice thing about putting them where they are and, and you, you kind of have to be a little bit, um, type A about making sure the, the diaphragms are as lined up as you could possibly get them so that, so there aren't any phase issues. Right. right. But that the nice thing is when you do that well, there aren't any phase issues mm -hmm. you know, with, with a two mic blend. So let's, um, I'd like to talk, if, 
Oh, we're starting to okay, hit the hour, but um, there's a lot more I would like to talk to you about. Let's get to some of the questions before we dig too deep. I wanted to get into um, composition, but that's a that's a big subject. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, let's see. So we have a few questions here. They're saying one person was asking, "Is it is important? How important is it in arcing the right hand when playing?" Um, interesting. Well, so I think you're talking about putting what I would call relief, oh, that's the wrong, relief in your wrist this way. Um, one thing that I have students do a lot, <laughs> it's, the, it's the wiggle test. So if you put your fingers up like this, oh, my badge is making so much sound right now. Um, put your fingers up and wiggle your fingers like this when your, when your wrists are neutral. Okay. Now bend them back like this. Wiggle your fingers. It feels terrible right now open your wrists up this way and wiggle feels the best that's because your tendons move through sheaths in your wrist when you go like this you open them up when you go like this you restrict them so one of the like first things that i do with students a lot of the time is just work on right hand technique and and work on like tone production um timing all of those things but a lot of the time so many banjo players want to depress their wrist into the banjo this way, right? So you can see that my wrist is collapsed here into the banjo. And it changes the geometry of how your fingers are capable of moving through the strings. So if you look at Tony Trishka, Bela, um, Gnome, pretty much everyone is either neutral or relieved this way. And the reason is is truly just like how we're built as humans. So I think it's pretty important. Yeah. Um, Shannon O'Hare says, from your years playing and teaching, what is one piece of can't miss advice that you would give all players that would resonate, no pun intended, regardless of level? <laughs> okay. Um, I think that if you can work from the very, very beginning, trying to uh, manage tension in your body, the better off you're going to be, right? So if you take the time from the get-go to really check in with yourself, really check in with like, am I putting relief in my left hand? Am I putting relief in my right hand? Like, are my shoulders scrunched up towards my ears? or my hands like super rock solid when I'm trying to play because it just gets in your way. It gets in your way of using your hands well. And actually, if you're super scrunched up like this, even the blood flow to your brain isn't as good. <laughs> so uh, that's that's one thing that I work on a lot with students is, is just being like, hey, it really looks tight when you're doing that. So if you if you watch yourself in a mirror or take video of yourself, um, one thing that Alan Mundy told me, I was asking him a million questions about his right hand. And at some point, I think he got bored and he was like, you know, I don't know. I didn't really think about it that specifically. The one thing I will tell you is that I did play in the mirror a lot when I was, when I was starting out and I made sure that it looked pretty, which is honestly amazing advice because as humans, we all understand how, what the human body looks like. And the reality is tension is not pretty. 
right? Like if you yeah. look at a musician or a banjo player, whoever it is that looks super tense, whether their hands are super tense or even like, you know, their face, the rest of their body is really scrunched up. It's not as fun to watch. Like there's a reason why Julian Lodge, who is one of the best guitar players to ever live, is also one of the most fun musicians to watch make music in the world, in my opinion. And it's because it's beautiful to watch him play guitar. And the reason is because he's taken a ton of time to think about how he's using his body to make the music that he's making. Yeah. It's good advice. Uh, I remember Tony Trishka give, uh, told me about a similar thing, but watching Brian Sutton. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Because um, Brian supposedly is very into uh, this, this relaxation and yes. breathing correctly. And uh, mm. Just talk to him about that. Um, Joseph Brosk has a question. Uh, no question, a lot of complexity is now being found in banjo music, but there is some kind of genius in simplicity. Is there a player who demonstrates this aspect of music? Interesting. Well, I think you can interpret simplicity in a number of ways, right? It's very uh, contextual, the way I would think about it. There's a young player named Max Allard who lives in Chicago, who's, I think, about to graduate high school, who I think has um, sort of alchemized a huge portion of, of like what Noam has done, what Bela has done, and turned it into this ultra musical, beautiful approach to the banjo. I would check him out. What's his name again? Max Allard. Yeah. So I'll check them out. Definitely. Um, let's see, Jamie, do we have, we have another chat channel that I can't see. Is there, are there some, uh, questions on that other channel? Uh, there might be a couple here. I, I just have one. Jonathan and I were talking in the background there. Um, Wes, first of all, you, you, pleasure to listen to like just soaking up the information i'm trying to manage a few different things in the back end here but <laughs> soaking in what we can uh, what we can take here but um you mentioned earlier there's there's uh you know just a, a plethora of like just really killer modern banjo players coming up um i think when you were talking about berkeley you want to give us a, a a sneak peek of who who those guys might be like a like a who's who well, um, of, of guys that you would keep a lookout for in that sense Sure. Max Lard is at the top of that list for yeah. sure. Okay. He's, he's unbelievably good. Matthew Davis is another one. Yeah. Um, let's see. Jordan Allman is also a really, really great banjo player. I'm going to forget folks right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I don't, I feel like most people know who she is, but I, I think BB Bounis is, is one of the best yeah. of, of, you know, like my my peers i think of, certainly think of her as a peer and she is just unbelievably good and so unique too such a such a beautiful unique approach to the banjo um that's awesome yeah that's so, awesome it's always good to know i mean it's usually really exciting to hear you know somebody of your caliber talking about like that 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 pool of talent coming up that's what we want to hear that's what we want to know yeah. and we, we get to meet people and see people at festivals but the you know, to, to have that 
validated as well. Um, sure. But, you know, it's, it's really cool to see. Um, as far as questions in the other chat, uh, the, there was a couple. Uh, Julie asks, how did Wes's parents feel about him learning banjo after all of those years learning classical piano? <laughs> yeah, that's a good this is, this is every parent's nightmare. Yeah, so, uh, you know, if I'm going to be totally honest, I think my mom had had some like pipe dreams that I would be a concert pianist. My, my mom's dad was a classical conductor. Um, he was he my grandfather was born and raised uh, on a subsistence farm in Ohio and played his way like paid and played his way through college as a trumpet player and piano player and then was the head of the music department at Ohio Wesleyan uh, in Delaware Ohio for 25 years so my mom grew up kind of inundated with classical music um, in fact there was a, a rule, and I think she, her and her sister started breaking this rule once headphones were a thing, but that for every Beatles record that they listened to, they had to listen to a classical record. <laughs> that's a rule. Yeah. yeah, that's a rule right there. Yeah. So um, uh, my dad, I think, was my, my dad is a very easygoing guy in a lot of ways, and and. Um, so I think it was easier for him to accept. But also, like, my mom took me to a huge portion of my piano lessons as a kid. And Suzuki piano and Suzuki method in general is very uh, parent-intensive in the beginning. Like, the parents, my mom was actually a, a good piano player. So she knew everything that I played. And she, like, part of that whole method is that the parents help you practice when you're at home. Yeah. Um, it's very intensive. So, right? yeah, I, I think it was it was tough. It was tough on my mom at first, but, you know, but once she realized how into it I was and, and once I started, you know, I think having um, a similar touch on the banjo that I did on the piano, uh, once yeah. she realized that those things could transfer. She, I was just going to ask that because uh, we, we talk about Jens a lot, you know, and, and the way he plays and I often kind of tell people that don't know him like if you close your eyes like Jens is one of those guys that you can if you close your eyes and, and listen it's almost like an orchestral instrument more than it's yeah. more than it's a banjo did, did your mom kind of recognize that there's some some transferability there and that it can't doesn't have to be just kind of that bluegrass kind of yeah absolutely thing? well and and having Bela as the as the first reference point for banjo kind of I, I didn't really have those those roadblocks, you know, mm -hmm. that, that like banjo isn't supposed to do that. I mean, Baylor released his classical record when I was in high school. I listened yeah. to that record a ton, you know? Um, so it, it was never, it was never really, I didn't feel boxed in from the get go. And I, I, I think, you know, honestly, I have Bela to thank for that. It's just pretty wild. Have you had the chance to thank him personally? I have actually. Yeah. 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 And we were just on stage together at Telluride this last saturday that's that's awesome that's really cool on my part <laughs> <laughs> um there was one more question i don't know how deep uh, this sounds like a, a subject that could go quite deep so i don't know whether you want to keep it fairly surface level but um herb uh avery earlier on in the chat was um i think when you played your your intro tune um uh, he said, awesome playing awesome event whenever you get a chance to talk about uh left hand i think he meant right hand muting um, he thinks he can hear some of that going on. Are you using a lot of right hand muting? 
techniques or, or can you uh, not in that tune. I didn't palm mute at all. I do do it occasionally, not as much as someone like Greg List or something who's like made a whole amazing sound out of that. Um, and Jens too, actually. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I didn't do anything there. Um, I do think of, I mean, if, if we are talking about left hand muting, um, I do actually think about in melodic style passages, making sure that things aren't ringing together so much, mm -hmm. um, that it, it makes the, the single string passages and melodic style passages sort of, uh, Two different things. Disparate. Yeah. Understood. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think those are all the questions I've got uh, on this end. Uh, real quick, I think uh, Moritz is asking what string gauge do you use? You want to you want to share that real quick for the? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm using uh, what? 10, 11, 13, 20, 10. Okay. And I like plain plain steel. I, I really uh, specifically have a hard time with with stainless steel fourth strings or anything like that. Um, awesome. Even awesome. plain steel or nickel. And then um, I'm using, what am I using? Uh, circle eights as my as my main finger picks. So those are the mm -hmm. national picks from the 50s. Um, and then I'm using an Altex Dunlop large. There you go. We've got the complete rundown today. Everything. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. This sounds like a, a pretty decent time to start wrapping up. But uh, real quick, I want to give our good friend Snap Jackson a quick shout out because he's never on here and he says hi. Hey, Snap. What's up? Hey, Snap. <laughs> I hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Um, and then I got, we got a part ways with a final uh, Ned. Nedism. Because in that, in that conversation, he says, there was a time where I used to be the best banjo player in my neighborhood, and now it's not even oh, close. Give me a break, man. Come on now. <laughs> He's a good man. amazing banjo player. Isn't he just? We had him on, when was that, Dave? Like a month or two ago, I think? Yeah, in the spring sometime. In the spring. It was fantastic. It was, it was, uh, it was really, really fun. So, um, Any final closing thoughts and things you want to share with the world? Or can we lure um, you into playing one more tune to say goodbye? I can play another tune if you want, but uh, you know, no pressure. Yeah, I was it. planning on singing something that that my teacher wrote, um, that Dave Keenan wrote on a low banjo. Do we have time for that? Yeah, we have time. Absolutely, as long as you have time, we're good. I, yeah. So while you're doing that, um, Dave, thank you, thank you for Jonathan in the back end there taking care of the the wonderful cut, cutaways and and uh, scenage. Um, thank you to everybody who joined and, and contributed to the questions today. This was a really fun one. Um, Wes, thank you. It was oh, it was really pleasure. really great to hang and yeah, uh, listen to you speak. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Thank you, thank you so much. Oh yeah, nice absolutely. We'll have to do it again. We'll do we'll do one dedicated to uh, composition, right, Dave? Yeah, I'd love to get into that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Awesome. All right, take it away, sir. As I wait for night, 
best life as I live my best day here on this earth. What is it worth? What is the price I paid for living this life? Can never be undone 